At one time, I was a poet in the greatest city in the world. Life was easy, and I lived without care. Until one fateful day, I met a beautiful woman who belonged to another man. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis, and this is episode 168. And our movie this week is the 1999 action movie, The 13th Warrior. And joining me to talk about it, he had never seen it before, Corey Scott, a.k.a. Captain Temerity. Corey, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. So, all right. I always like to start out with sort of a, any kind of a history or knowledge of a movie. So you hadn't seen this movie, but were you familiar with it or the source material or anything like that at all? I didn't realize I was familiar with the source material until I started watching it. Okay. And then I was completely like, oh, I've totally seen this before. It's The Lord of the Rings. <laughs> all right. All right. So how did you know of The 13th Warrior as a film before we started talking about it? Um, and you just hadn't seen it or what? Like, what's your history there? I definitely had heard of it. I just had never really stopped to watch it. And I think it was probably, it might have just been sort of taken off my radar in much the way it was taken off the audience's radars uh, when it came out a couple years late after struggling so much to, to get put together the right way to begin with. And mm. then it, it really underperformed. And I just feel like it never showed up in any place where I wound up seeing it. Yeah, you're not wrong. So the, they started working on this movie, uh, I mean... If you want to really go back, it got started in the late 70s, uh, was the first attempted adaptation. So this is based on a novel, Eaters of the Dead, by Michael Crichton. Uh, he published that novel in 1976. The first attempt at adapting it was like 79, uh, and Michael Crichton was going to direct it. That did never happen. Uh, fast forward a couple of decades, and they started working on this version of it in 97. And you're right, it had a very troubled production uh, and ended up not coming out until 1999. And then, by then, the production budget had ballooned. Uh, it had gone from somewhere in the $80 million, $85 million range up to reportedly about $100, $110 million. Tack on your marketing. It's a huge, huge thing. And then it opens the same weekend as a movie you may have heard of called The Sixth Sense. Yep, which, which is interesting because they also see dead people in this. Yes. Yes, they do. And The Sixth Sense just sucked all the oxygen out of the room. There was nothing left. Nobody was seeing anything but that. This movie opened to like $10 million in its opening weekend, which, I mean, in 1999, it's not awful, but also not very not very good. Um, and then it just sort of floundered. It did not do well. I think it was, a, I want to say, $60 million worldwide on what is reported to be up to as much as $160 million when you include marketing to make this movie. So it just, it was a huge flop and critics weren't kind to it either. Uh, Roger Ebert gave it like one and a half stars out of four. Cri the, the critics all kind of had the same rough thing to say, which is like, it looks nice, but the plot's weird, which it is. But I feel like it's unfair to this movie, how it was treated on its release. But I also do think that it could have been better. And I'm going to get into that, uh, in a little bit on my thoughts there. But 
first, I would like to to just get your initial reaction to it. Now that you've seen the movie, um, without a whole lot of like hype behind it for you personally, what do you think? Um, I'm gonna say that it started out kind of rough. Uh, my wife decided she wanted to watch it with me, and then fell asleep halfway through. Not because she wasn't enjoying it. I think she was actually surprised at how much she was enjoying it. Uh, it was just kind of late when I threw it on. But the very beginning, she said, this looks like it's filmed for PBS. <laughs> and it really rushes through so much stuff. Things happen, and they continue to happen, and there's no real slow-up to develop character or anything else like that to introduce characters. There are 13 warriors. We don't really know half of them mm -hmm. by the thing being done. Um and it's only if you've got a, a at least a passing familiarity of the story of Beowulf to really understand who some of these characters are, what they're based off of. And they're not even based off of the same characters they were in Crichton's book. Uh, he changed a lot of it for the film. Yeah. So it's it's moving very quickly. It's a little choppy, but it does keep you kind of pinned in um, when you start watching it. And it starts to get like, oh, here's the actual story. The story's good. Mm -hmm. The the acting is is well done. I mean, I really liked William Cat, who it turns out wasn't William Cat, <laughs> and uh, Vigo from Ghostbusters Two, who also wasn't Vigo from Ghostbusters Two, and the Puss in Boots guy. They were all great. It was just it was so much uh, nonstop that I am not surprised it didn't catch on, but I'm also not surprised that it's starting to fare better as people get the opportunity to see it and sort of a slower, leisurely pace of watching it on their own. And catching it here and there and going, oh, wait, there's something to this. This mm -hmm. was not the flop that I thought it should have been. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of where I get with like it better than it. It is better than the the fate that it got. It, like it deserved better than that. But it also isn't perfect and it's got some rough edges to it. That that beginning, while while difficult to track, if you're paying attention, it's actually pretty brilliant and it's a great way to introduce into your story it's just it does move at a very quick pace and so like you don't get to sit down and settle into your seat and be like all right now the movie can start no you got to be paying attention because they're throwing all sorts of stuff at you to be at, right at the beginning and i like a lot of that part the more times i watch it and i think if you if this is a movie that you enjoy it does have some rewatchability and that can be more fun um, when you go back and you kind of pay a little bit of attention to stuff that's going on in the background. Now, look, it's not what I would call historically accurate, um, but this was the late 90s in in Hollywood, so there's going to be a lot of liberties taken anyway. But what I liked is it got a lot of the feel of what I would expect kind of this world to be where they're, they're existing, so I did enjoy that. Um, but you're right, once they kind of get to... Um, Prothgar and and get get there, the story picks up, and I think that the movie becomes very engaging at that point um, because now we've sort of pared it down to we're just going to pay attention. We we really only need um, Ahmed or uh, Ahmed. Uh, I'm going to mispronounce a lot of these names, so I apologize in advance. Uh, but Antonio Banderas's character, um, Herger who is my favorite in the entire movie, uh, the, the not-quite-William-Cat, Dennis uh, Storhoy. Um, he's awesome. Herger the Joyous. And then uh, Bullvi, um, your, your Beowulf. Those are really who we're kind of paying attention to, and it's just that they 
I don't like the title the 13th warrior. Like I get what they were going for, but eaters of the dead is a much more interesting title to me. And I wish they would have stuck with that because the 13th warrior kind of gives you an idea of what you're dealing with, but also not, I don't know. It feels like it's a, like it's a, uh, sanitized title. It, it also feels like it. you would expect a legacy thing, like the 13th warrior, he's the 13th one to try to champion something and the other 12 have all died. Mm-hmm. It, it's not a, a fellowship that you would get from this, um, where he's Frodoing into this group of people and suddenly has to go and do this huge epic quest. But I, I completely get why they went with that title, because it was just something that was easier to understand. And Eaters of the Dead sounds like a horror movie, more than an epic historical fantasy. Yeah. I mean, it you're you're not wrong there. I just I think it I like it as a better as a title, but maybe that's because I was familiar with the book existing. I hadn't read it prior to seeing the movie, but I knew that it existed. So I'm like, why would you adapt a novel and then change the title by that much? Like I don't know, I didn't I didn't love that. But there's that's a little bit of my bias kind of sneaking through as well. How many times they tried to make I Am Legend before actually calling it I Am Legend? Yeah, that's uh, true. Was they sometimes only... go for something that's a little bit of an easy opening for the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you're trying to mass appeal um, a movie, calling it Eaters of the Dead is going to immediately turn off a certain subset of your potential audience no matter what. Um, but the funny thing is you sanitize the title like that, but then the reshoots actually added more gore to the film later on. So yeah, that's sort of a a weird uh, juxtaposition, but we're going to get into the reshoots in a little bit, but I do want to talk about this cast. First of all, Antonio Banderas. All right. So look, he's not Arab. He's not middle Eastern. Uh, he is a Spaniard. Um, however, I don't hate, like I like his performance. I like him in the movie. I would have liked to have seen somebody of, uh, of Arab descent get cast. It's kind of hard to do not. I would, I shouldn't say hard. It wasn't something that was getting that was happening a lot, uh, especially at this time in Hollywood. There wasn't a lot of effort being made towards accuracy and those things at that point. Not at all. But I will say that I love the fact that the character at this, and especially in this stage in Hollywood, when when we've been transitioning all of our villains to being vaguely middle Middle Eastern in all of your action movies, to have this character and he's well-spoken he's educated he's he's a very good well-rounded character to lead this movie so i liked that part of it um and i like antonio banderas quite a bit it just you know in hindsight yes i would like to have had somebody that was a little more accurate to the character itself but it's 20 something years too late for that now uh so we we have what we have which is antonio banderas what did you think of him in the movie i thought it was really good uh i I don't know that I've never I've ever really had the full appreciation of Antonio Banderas. I didn't I don't remember anything about the Zorro movies that he was in. Uh I may have seen parts of his Phantom. Uh I I've never got to see Evita. But back to the Puss in Boots thing, like he is so terrific as the character of Puss in Boots. We just saw the trailer for the most recent one the other day, and I'm still just floored by how good they made that and how much it pulls from things like Zorro, but also from his Desperado films and, mm-hmm. and that kind of stuff. Like, he's very talented. I watched some weird Netflix um, Die Hard in a Mall movie recently <laughs> with him, and I was like, 
this has got really good ratings. It's not a great film, but I can see the the energy that he gives off making it so enjoyable that people would just like watching this film with him in it. Mm-hmm. And I I kind of feel like that was where this was. It, it's not an excellent job in any means for for him, but he's good. He's solid. You know, you can build that film on his shoulders and it works. But I think the ensemble of, of everybody in that group also adds to it. It also makes up for it. Yes. And Phil in the chat mentions Banderas is incredibly charismatic. And that's the thing. He is very charismatic and you're kind of drawn to him on screen, but you nailed it, which is he's good. Everybody is good, but the the combination of all of them in this cast elevates it, I think, beyond and makes it more watchable because, again, Dennis Storhoy as Herger, the joyful, is a delight throughout the entirety of the movie. Like, he's just... He's my favorite thing in this in this entire movie. He's he just captures this this uh, great joyous energy. But he and he's also he's very welcoming um, to Ahmed. He's Martigan. Yeah, he, he's he's that swashbuckly kind of aspect in the film where it's not really about swashbuckling, but he's just got that. You know, he knows he's good. He knows mm-hmm. he can survive things. He knows that the odds are still against him. That they all could definitely die. And he just sort of rolls with it. And it's his rolling with it and his ability to keep everybody else sort of uplifted in these horrific times and incidents that it's like, okay, yeah, I I would follow this guy too. You know, especially Mm -hmm. considering the fact that one of these people is not from this group, not from their lands, not familiar with anything that's going on. And he keeps kind of pulling him in, keeps giving feedback of like, well, this is what you need to do to to change. This is how you have to adapt. And You know, I, I know you don't get it, but get it or die. Yeah. Yep. Exactly that. And and it's it's like the perfect uh, vehicle to bring this outsider in, and and I love that. And then you get Vladimir Kulich as uh, Bulvai, who this is. It's not the first movie I remember him from, but it's the one I always think of when I see him pop up in a movie. Um, I remember watching. Uh, did you ever see Smoke and Aces? came out in like 2007 joe carnahan it's got a huge cast of characters in it yeah all the different assassins trying to eliminate the same target is that the one yep that's the one Uh, and jeremy piven yes yes exactly that and he's in it as the swede and i just remember he popped up on screen and i was like it's bullvi like i that's what i when i see him i think of him in this movie that's the kind of impact that this had on me at the time um, but I, I liked his performance in this because here he is, he's playing Beowulf, right? So, so yeah. he, he is Beowulf, but he's not this, like, he's not the version of Beowulf that was in the Robert Zemeckis film from about 10 years ago or so. That very like braggadocious, boastful character that he portrayed. He's very subdued. Um, he's very thoughtful and like, um, almost introspective in a lot of ways. And I just, I liked that performance of him because he's got, he, again, he knows how good he is, but he also, and he knows that he can survive a lot of things, but like when it's his time, it's his time. And so he's just, he's going to be the best that he can up until that happens. And pretty ballsy to do Beowulf without making Beowulf the main character. Yes. You know, he's the lead. He's, he's, he's the Aragorn of this group. And I'm going to keep bringing references to Lord of the Rings because there's a (laughs) lot of Lord of the Rings in this. Um, but he he definitely has that that power and that that stoic nature and everything that you you look at him you see leader, 
but the movie's not about him. It, no. It's it's about the people around him and his fight. But it's amazing that he is not that prevalent in this. Yeah. Yep. And and I love like I love little moments like where now look it's anachron it's a bit of an anachronism that the Vikings don't know writing. Right when he asks him, yep. "Can you draw sounds?" and he does that. Out. But what I liked about it was that was a thing set up early on it, during their journey, and then referenced during the journey. But then you get the payoff right at the end. Right, he sets it up early on, asking him about that, kind of almost testing him the second time to be like, "Is this guy really giving me real information?" And he writes that he writes it in the sand, and then to bring it up as he's dying, like, "Boy, you know, a man would be thought pretty wealthy if somebody would write would draw the story of his life." Yeah. And like that was that was I really, really liked that uh, tying that up at the end like that it was pretty cool. Yeah, um, it, it kind of gives you a, a bard sort of feel of, mm -hmm. you know, the person who sings about the exploits of the of the warriors and everything. It, I think they did that uh, similarly in 300. Yeah. And I, I kind of like that story, too, where the, the guy at the end, it's like, well, again, it's not about him. But he's he's the carrier of the the story to everybody else. Yep, uh, he's the narrator of it, and makes a, a good deal of sense by the end of it. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed uh, Coolidge in this, and and it is kind of cool to see. I like a movie that um, I like adaptations of like really old legends. You know, stuff like Beowulf or like um, I'm trying to think of what the other one was uh, off the top of my head, Gilgamesh. Um, these these like iconic things that everybody it's sort of it permeates everything and you can kind of know it without knowing it in some ways but i like seeing those adapted in a different way take it and i don't just need a beowulf that is exactly what the story of beowulf was give me something give me a little twist on it and have some fun with it and they did that here um you know it's sort of like taking one and adapting it to a different time period uh which uh, we've also seen beowulf done because um, I think the Christopher Lambert one, if I remember correctly, was right. was a different time period. It's like future or something. It's been so long since I've seen it, I can't remember now. But but it was cool to see them take, you know, because that's what Crichton, Crichton took Beowulf and the character of Ahmed Ibn Fadalan. Fa, Ahmed. We'll go with that. Um, who is based on a real historical figure of somebody who was an emissary to uh, the North um, and wrote uh, a thing, which I'm not entirely sure how accurate it is, um, his his accounts, but that's where like the whole opening where they have the Viking funeral, the, the funeral for the king going on, a lot of that is from his book um, that he wrote about meeting these Northmen, um, which I thought was kind of neat. Including the the woman who went on to Valhalla with the dead king. Yep. Uh, which wow, that was that was a savage moment. That was amazing, and her going into that boat and and being set afire with him, but no screams or anything. Like it was seriously, it, it was like she chose that as a as a moment of honor, and that was well depicted for being such a to you know a modern mind horrific thing. Mm -hmm. um, but. To, to see what these these beliefs were in those people and the the length they would go to to continue them that was incredible yeah um and even like his disgust over when they when they bring the bowl of water around and everybody's washing their face in it and spitting in it and all of that and like his disgust about that that's that's what he wrote about like how gross that was 
But at the same yeah. time, you know, he uh, his account was that these Vikings, these Northmen, were just like perfect humans. Like they were just chiseled out of rock, and they were the their physical specimens were amazing, but their hygiene was terrible. Um, so I, I I found that whole opening interesting in that way. Um, Do you feel like? Um, Banderas was maybe not the perfect choice for the characterization in the sense that they keep implying that he's not strong, that he's not manly, that he rides a dog, all of those things. Like, it seemed like his, his stature should have been smaller in comparison to them, and he was really shoulder to shoulder with these guys. Kind of. Uh, I mean, they, they sort of tried to make it out that, you know, he wasn't a warrior, so he could still be shoulder to shoulder in size, but he wasn't like, he didn't know how to fight, but he then he figured out, yeah, he figured out how to fight pretty quick, which I guess, you know, kind of makes sense. Sort of a trial by fire. He's either going to figure it out or he's going to die. So that sort of fits kind of the, the motif of what they're going for as well, I think in some ways, yeah. but, but yeah, I can see what you're saying there. Um, I, I, I think, I feel like. Well, we'll talk about uh, what I think they, they would have done differently without the reshoots that they did. Um, but before we do, I have to mention Omar Sharif in this mm-hmm. um, because as it, as the story goes, after the movie came out, Omar Sharif uh, temporarily retired from acting um, for a few years because of uh, sort of what he felt like making this movie and seeing the final product was. Um, and he sort of had this moment of like, Maybe just taking jobs for the money isn't a thing I need to do anymore. Maybe I can just kind of, you know, only do work if it really moves me. Which, look, I've said countless times on this show and any other show, I will never, ever talk down about an actor taking a role for a paycheck. They need to eat just like any of us. Um, but when, you've, when you're when you Omar Sharif and you've reached that point in your career, y- you can do that, and that's fine. Um, I also think some of it is seeing the final product based uh, off of kind of what they, because he's not the only one that I've heard and read about saying like the the original version of this was a lot different. And so I almost feel like he was kind of like, damn, I did that. (laughs) But he is great. I love him in this. I like his role because he's that transitional piece between uh, the Arab world and the Viking world. And he's the, the way in. And I like that idea of they come into the tent and he's trying to talk to people and they're like, try Greek. And so he starts speaking Greek and there's one of them that happens to know it. Because this is taking place, they meet them in what is uh, part of Western Russia is where they are. And so that's, you know, a little north of the Byzantine Empire and, and Europe and all of that. And he starts speaking Greek and there's one of them that understands Greek but doesn't speak it. So he responds in Latin and then they just start talking Latin. And now it's, you've got that... He's speaking whatever, whichever dialect they have, which translates to Latin, which translates to the, the Arabic language that we're getting as English. Um, and I, I did enjoy that part of like the opening. Yeah, and, was... and whatever you think of the, the rest of the movie, uh, Omar Sharif is not wasted in this. Mm. It, he, he's a, a treasured part of this film. Like his, his character and, and the time that he's there I think definitely elevates the movie and, and gives it more uh, more respect than maybe it would have earned without him. Uh, I, I again, I'm not trying to to piss down on the movie either because I did wind up liking it a lot. But him being there, it was like, oh, this is really great, you know. And then he was gone, like, okay, well, let's see how it does now. And frankly, it just seemed to get better. 
Yeah. It's like a, it's a step above stunt casting. He's not stunt casted into a cameo, but he's brought in and he's he's well known enough and he has enough gravitas on screen and as an actor that he does. He elevates what's going on and he kind of makes you sit up and pay attention. Like, oh, oh, they got Omar Sharif. All right. You know, that's the dude from Lawrence of Arabia. Let's pay attention to what's going on here. It's it a time when Ben Kingsley would have been that kind of level of actor, and then he just wound up doing every single <laughs> kind of trash role that he could. Again, he's in that uh, Banderas movie that I watched, the Die Hard and Mall thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he he doesn't necessarily like. You think Ben Kingsley? You go back to really the the highest of of highs in work, and then you look at all the other stuff that he's done and go, well, maybe okay. You know, that is a paycheck. I mean, look, even Sean Connery did Zardoz, right? So yeah, it happens to them all. But I just, I they really... Pictures of Zardoz for the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly. That's a win for everybody. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sean Connery and that leather mankini is something I will never unsee, no matter how hard I try. So, um, but yeah, Omar Sharif, I just, I enjoyed him so much in this. And I, I really, like, when I think of Omar Sharif, I either think of... Lawrence of Arabia, and I think of this uh, because this is kind of I've seen this movie enough times, and he just his delivery of everything and just the way he was in it, I I quite enjoyed. So that's what me. do you think the casting is like? Where they go, wow, this part, well, who who do we get for something like this? Well, it'd be really great if we get someone like Omar Sharif. <laughs> did you did you call him? Let's see what happens. And then all of a sudden, it's like he said yes. I mean, probably, right? Now, I know Vladimir Kulich was not their first choice or their second choice at all for uh, Bullvi. In fact, he was like, he, he read for it, and then they went through, I guess, just a number of different people and finally came back to him. Um, and I think they're lucky that they did. I think, I think he just, like, he's the perfect amount of recognizable and the right presence for the way the role was characterized without taking away from Banderas and that end of things either. If you're, if, if your Beowulf in your Beowulf adaptation is not the main character, having him be somebody that is doing what Coolidge did in this, I think works. So, yeah, I think he was, he was a very good choice in the role. I think he handled it incredibly well. And especially again, because he knows he's not the lead, Mm -hmm. but he is what the, the story is built upon. Um, that is not an easy thing for an actor who, you know, you're trying to, to vie for being the lead in films. You want people to see your work and and think of you as leading man so you can cast your next film and your next film and so on. Mm-hmm. And th- being just a solid character actor is really, in, in some ways, I think it could be more fulfilling, but it's not as bankable. No, definitely not. Um, a couple other cast members I have to mention because I love them. Tony Curran as Weath, um, the musician. He's the redheaded one. Uh, yep. If I see Tony Curran in something, Curran, not Curran, Curran. If I see Tony Curran in something, I, I smile. I'm happy. He's just, he's got just a, his accent is great. His his mannerisms and just the way he carries himself on screen. I remember him popping up in uh, like Netflix's Punisher. Um, yeah. He, he was in, uh, I loved him in, uh, for the small role he had in Blade 2. Like stuff like that. He just, he always seems to pop up and stuff. And I'm just like, ah, I like Tony. He's great. So it was cool to see him there. And he, I think he even, um, his costume had a patch of uh, tartan on it. 
too, which I thought was a nice, yeah. nice touch. Um, did you now? Are you familiar with actor Eric Avari? Does that name no. sound familiar? You've seen him in stuff like he was in Independence Day, uh, I think, or no, Stargate. Sorry, Stargate. He was the like the the um, village elder in Stargate, the one that they feed the Fifth Avenue bar to. Okay, uh, man, that, it's been a long time since I've seen Stargate. Uh, he was in the Mummy. Uh, he ran the the library, yep. all that kind of stuff. He's in this, and I had no idea. He's the caravan leader at the beginning of it. Um, you okay. barely see his face, but I saw his name on the IMDb page. And I'm like, he was he was the caravan leader. And when I'm watching it again, I'm li- I'm paying attention to the voice. I'm like, well, damn, that is Eric Avari. And he, it's not like he was unknown at this point. He had this is '99, so he had done all these movies already. And to have him in this, that's like almost stunt casting to put him in this movie. You barely see his face, but I had to mention him because he's fantastic. He's another one. He shows up in something and I'm happy. So, um, yeah, there's also like the rest of the warriors, the rest of the, the Viking crew, um, were a lot of Scandinavian actors. Um, but they were interesting. Even if they didn't have a ton of screen time, there was something interesting about most of them, whether it was just that they were huge, uh, like uh, John DeSantis, who was Ragnar, who you basically see say, I'm the ninth man, and then he dies in the first fight. Right. But, but that guy's like six foot ten, right? just this mountain of a human being. Or um, the guy with the, he, the only tattooed Viking in this is uh, Skeld, the superstitious one. And um, I found that really interesting because when you think especially modern adaptations of anything Viking related, they're all just tattooed head to toe, right? And they're just covered in them. And he's the one out of all of them that had any tattoos on him at all. And he had just that like band across the middle of his face. Right. Um, and, and what's funny is uh, when he, he died, my wife looked at it and she's like, Oh, I really liked him. And I'm like, we didn't even know him. <laughs> we didn't know most of these guys. I get it. I felt the same way. I was like, Oh man, that guy. Cause you instantly have a personality associated with them. From the mm-hmm. tattoos and from a couple of times you see him on the screen, you recognize him. I, I kind of, I know this is awful, um, but I know in a modern day of not good cinema, they would introduce all of these other warriors and they would have like the freeze frame up the screen with their names like uh, in the Suicide Squad. Yeah. Uh, like, and here's this guy who's going to die five minutes from now. And mm-hmm. here's this, when you read the names of the characters in uh, IMDb or whatever. You're like, oh, well, there's a lot of personality to these guys that you don't get to bring across, that you don't really associate. There's no click between the name and who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unfortunate because their time is so limited. Uh, but, you know, someone's got to be Slipknot. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the perfect <laughs> one, by the way. Thank you for that. Um, no, but but what I think what was cool about it from the from a look perspective because that's most of what you're going to get for these characters is just a short amount of time on screen. They were very, they were varied. There was, yeah. there was such a difference in all of them. You got a redhead, somebody blonde. This guy's got super dark hair. This one's short haired and like a well-cropped beard. This guy's beard is all over the place. Uh, you had the one dude who's uh, had the giant braid coming down off the side of his head, the archer. Mm-hmm. And then there was the, the boy um, whose name is Hotloff and, uh, who you barely see. He's one of the 13. And it was almost like they were like, "Eh, we can't, he's going to survive, but we can't really show him in battle. So he'll just sort of pop up here and there. 
Um, but I, you know, there's, there's him, there's the, um, uh, health Dane, the fat one, who's the guy that had like the big metal breastplate on, which again, another anachronism to have that in 10th century. Um, same with Bullvi's kind of plate armor, that style of armor, but I don't care. It looked cool. Like I liked having that guy who had that breastplate and he's like, I ain't taking this thing off. Even when they're all taking yeah. off their armor to climb through that, that cave and be silent. He's like, uh, uh-uh, uh, you got to kiss me first. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I really enjoyed that. So it, it's unfortunate that we don't get more time with these characters, but I did like the varying looks because it also sort of fits the 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 Vikings. They they weren't like they would uniformed. Yeah, they would be very different looking, and they had different armor. The one guy's got like a, a gladiator helmet, like you can tell is a Roman gladiator helmet with the big cage he opens up off the side of it. They would they would steal their armor from from whoever they killed. They would take mm-hmm. the things of someone that they defeated, and they would adapt it to their own use. Yep. So I, I very much enjoyed that. Um, yeah, it's okay. All right. So production issues with this movie. You hire John McTiernan to do your movie, who is one of my favorite directors. Like, I love his work. But then you don't let him make the movie that he wants to make. What is with that? Right. I, I hate when studios do that. I'm sure there's uh, a little bit of, of ego <laughs> clashing, too, because you got Michael Crichton involved. And by this point now, Crichton is sort of again, a hot commodity with Jurassic Park and uh, all his, you know, the different movies that have been made from his books over the last, say, five years. This but, may be a, an obscure reference, especially if you don't uh, follow 80s metal, but uh, he went full Ingve Malmsteen, <laughs> where he's just like, hey, I've got these great talented musicians, but I'm going to play bass on this. I'm going to sing on this. I'm going to I'm going to do the drum track for this and just like not utilize anybody at all. And I feel like that's what Crichton did. He's he's like, wow, this is a really talented uh, group of people making a movie based off of my story, but it's my story, so screw you. Yeah, and it's a bummer because, again, McTiernan is is one of my favorite action directors for when he was making movies. Now, he hasn't done anything since 2003's Basic. Um, but the thing that he did so well is the camera becomes another character and he's very dynamic with his camera and his movements and his framings. And so it, it always draws your eye to something and whether he's making a thriller, whether he's making, you know, more of an action uh, oriented movie, he just always is doing something interesting visually. And he works with his DP to get uh, the lighting, the way that he wants to make things look interesting. It's sort of like a, I don't want to, I hate dragging Michael Bay all the time because I feel like the guy does know what he's doing for what he does. But like, it's like McTiernan's like an elevated Michael Bay in that he knows how to make visually interesting stuff, but his movies tend to be a little bit smarter and a little bit easier or a little bit better to watch. Most of them rollerball being an exception. In both cases, they've created a style that is very recognizable towards them. You, Mm -hmm. you see a Michael Bay movie, you know, it's a Michael Bay movie and there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It may not be, the, my preference of film, mm-hmm. but I I get what he's doing and he's consistently doing it and he's got his audience and that works. Yeah, and and like again, you're you're hiring the director that gave us Predator, Die Hard, and The Hunt for Red October in succession. Like those yeah. were the the first three major movies he made after uh, Nomads, and then you don't let him finish that movie. It's the it's the problem of test audiences. It's this idea that you're going to take 
the movie in an unfinished state and show it to a test audience, they're not going to fully get what's going on. It may even not have everything done in it yet. And they, they, they're like, oh, it tested bad, so we got to redo everything. I hate that because nine times out of ten, the changes you make make for a worse movie. How many movies do you see where it's been stuck in development hell because test audiences didn't like it and they reshoot a bunch of stuff and it's worse for it? Fantastic Four or Fanforstic was one of those that had that problem. Um, I, I, I mean, there's so many of them. And it, it really bums me out because I want to see what McTiernan was trying to do with this because there's moments you see that. There's like my one of my favorite sequences in the movie doesn't really have anything to do with the main plot. And it is that whole thing where they find out that Weeglyph, the the king's son, is like giving the king bad information about him, which we had we've seen nothing of except for a small little verbal sparring match between him and Bullvie that lasted for like what thirty seconds. Um, where Bullvie just basically makes a statement that we had no basis to follow as to where it came from, but yeah. oh, I haven't heard anything about your deeds except you killing your brothers. It's like oh crap. You know, that's something to just throw out there. But yeah. didn't we meet his brother? Wasn't it his brother who got sent to, to gather them in the first place? <laughs> exactly. And and But then what that leads to, which is that little uh, duel between the red-headed giant and Herger, is a great moment in the movie. And it feels very McTiernan to me in what they were setting up there. And it's like they cut uh, – it feels like they cut a lot of that out to have yet another action sequence, but also cut the runtime down. Because I think his original runtime was something like two hours and ten minutes, and the finished yeah, product we, was about... We get no, no follow-up with that brother, or with the king's son at all. No, none. After that. It, it's just this happens, and then they go on, and they, you know, defeat the, the Wendell. Uh, but it, it's still like, that, that scene is great, and and certainly we we get some great character moments from that, and the ideas presented in are good. Like there's the the elation of like, oh, you survived. Oh, you could have beat them all along. Yes, but I'm trying to keep them from knowing that I can do that because mm-hmm. uh, now they have questions. But then even the 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 main guy is like, yeah, but we could have really used him fighting later on. You know, it's going to cost us in the long run because we killed someone who's a good warrior yep. that could have been on our side. Yeah. Um. So it's it's. There's so much interesting to it, and there's just no follow-up from it after that. Yeah, that's... That's unfortunate. It is. It is, because there's a lot of great character development happening there, and and interesting story stuff, and then it just sort of... It's like the... It just disappears. We never hear about it again. Um, Instead, we'll we'll, we'll pay more attention to the, the whole tribe of whatever these men are that dress like bears, which, again, that's not even dove into much in terms of who they are, why they do what they do. They're just there. They're the evil berserkers, basically. Um, and so it's it's that thing where it's like, I feel like McTiernan's movie had a, a more cohesive plot um, that explored a few more things, and that's not what the test audiences expected, and so then the studio pivots on it, and they, they bring in uh, Crichton. So Michael Crichton actually did uncredited reshoots on this, I did see an interview with Vladimir Kulich talking about how he was doing two sets of reshoots at the same time with both directors and both directors telling him, don't worry about what the other one's doing. Focus on what I'm doing with you right now. And like, that's gotta be really difficult on an actor. 
yeah. to do. And uh, I think even McTiernan is, has said, uh, you know, kind of in retrospect, like, it wasn't the greatest time for me and I probably could have handled it better. But, you know, at the same time, I was trying to make my movie and he's got an ego. Like, I definitely have seen that in interviews with John McTiernan because he's done some good stuff. He, he has the receipts to back up like, hey, I know what the hell I'm doing making a movie here. Because by this point, he had made, like I said, Predator, Die Hard, Hunt for Red October, Die Hard with a Vengeance. He he made Last Action Hero, which is a lot better than it was than it was received at the time. Yeah, another um, box office bomb that shouldn't necessarily have been a bomb. But. Right. You know, and then and he actually put out this movie the same year. Uh, it was released the same year as the Thomas Crown Affair, which is another movie that is kind of criminally underseen. I feel like mm-hmm. Thomas Crown Affair is a lot better than people remember it being, especially that ending. That ending is great. Um, but and then you get Michael Crichton coming in, being like, "No, no, look, I wrote this was this was one of the funnier bits of trivia that I read, though, which was the mother of the window, um, that character. They had vastly different versions of that. John McTiernan had like an older kind of hag." version of that which is closer to what was in the book and when Crichton came in and was doing his reshoots he didn't want that because he didn't according to the trivia he didn't feel as though that would reflect well on the heroes to kill an old woman and it should be somebody younger and more you know physically capable and I'm just thinking dude you wrote what originally they were working with right that's you that wrote that now you're changing it like Maybe he was trying to make it distinct from things like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, but also had the uh, old witchy woman that they had to dispatch in the film. Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's not an it's not an outlandish scene. Um, I I would have gone with something like the oh there was that Legion movie where the old lady is like telling them and all in the diner that they're gonna die, and then she starts spider walking throughout the place. Like, oh yeah, have the woman but have her function like a young athletic person and and beat the snot out of him a little bit. I, that would have been cool. Yeah. I, for one, the, the fight, that whole fight is too short for it to be yeah. the climactic fight. And that's part of, again, the reshoots because the whole thing with the leader of the, the window, the guy with the, the horns, the horns of power, that was added. That wasn't part of, of McTiernan's version at all. Um. And so I feel like they sped through him killing the mother of the window to get to that final battle. Yeah, it felt a little bit like at the end with the the fifth element where they kill the one leader of the whole troop and then everybody just gives up. Mm-hmm. It was like that that was convenient, you know. <laughs> like yeah. well, you kill this guy and it'll all be over, and they kill the guy and it's all over. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, yeah, I just like. I remember the first time I saw it thinking, wait, this is the mother? Like, she's too young. It, it felt, that yeah. felt off to me. Um, and again, with like a really cool scene leading up to that, with all the stuff they're doing is they're sneaking in and they're sneaking past all of these people and the whole waterfall swinging thing and like that kind of tense moment. Um, I enjoyed all of that. And then he goes in there to fight her and I'm expecting this older, you know, gray-haired, woman or so or something different and it's she looks like she's 22 yeah if she's like the spiritual leader of the whole tribe that would be another thing too but just calling her the mother kind of leads you down one path that it doesn't quite make sense for yeah 
Uh, it does lead to a, a pretty cool moment, though, with um, the final battle being what it was. Uh, the battle itself is okay, but the lead up to it is pretty, pretty epic. You got to have that that moment of like everyone coming together, and you get Antonio Banderas's character doing his prayers, followed by that prayer that all the uh, Vikings recite, which uh, is the Valhalla prayer. Yes, which is oh, so good. There's there's a few really good lines in this, and I've captured a couple of them we're going to talk about. But um, it leads up to that, and then you have that final battle. The fight itself, okay, you know, whatever. It's another action sequence uh, with a with a cool backdrop. But I loved the ending where Bullvi has defeated everything. He's won, and he sits down on that kind of makeshift throne that's part of their wall for some reason. Um, but he sits down and he plants the sword and then we don't see him again until they're all standing around him and he's dead and he's just stone dead staring forward. And I was like, okay, all right, if you're going to go out, that's a pretty, it's a pretty badass way to go out. And his dog signifies it. His dog is the one who kind of lets them all know. Yeah. Um, kind of calls them over to, to understand what had happened. And, but it, it was also just such a, incredible moment when they're all about to go and have that final fight and we know that he's dying mm-hmm. but then that he pulls himself out there to be a part of that battle that he's yeah. not given up on on being a warrior he just knows that he's giving up on his life uh but that that's him he fights the whole way through he fights to the very end and and, and, and wins yeah and in part because their philosophy of like the story of your like this the skein of your life has already been woven the the story everything's set out you're just there to play it out. So that idea behind that and him knowing, like, my time is happening. I'm at it now. All I can do is everything I can until that ends. And yep. and for him to pull himself out like that, that that was. That's that that rallying moment. That's the the Aragorn giving the speech before they ride uh before they head in to fight for Frodo. Like all of that is is what that scene is, and, and I really enjoyed it. And, and I like too, cause it was the mixing of, it was, it was the final moment that really made Antonio Banderas's character part of the group. Like he had, he had yep. been slowly becoming more and more integrated and like, because I love when he, um, alters his sword and then he brings it back. And there's that moment right afterwards where the guy says, Hey, if you die, can I give that to my daughter? Right. And, and his reaction to it is great. Cause he's got just kind of this like chuckle and like, okay, we're becoming friends now, you know, type of thing. Uh, so that last moment where they all say the prayer and it finishes up right before the battle starts, I'm like, yep, he's now part of the, he's part of the family. And, he, and, and they show respect to each other. Of the, and when he joins in with their prayer um, after he has said his own and everything, and then at the end when he's leaving and, um, and the joyful is like, I, I know you only have one God. We have many. I'm going to pray to all of them for you. You know, I hope that doesn't offend you. He was like, no, I'll thank you for it. That, mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing, too, because they could have been very disrespectful of the two, you know, at odds cultures, and they're not. They really kind of embrace both things. And that that's itself a beautiful message in a movie that I think is itself also kind of beautiful in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, I'm with you on that. Um yeah, I just I enjoy this movie. It's it's better than it gets a lot of credit for and I think that I think that people that that talk down about it most of them just go off of well, it didn't do well in the box office and the critics hated it. 
Like, watch the movie. It's actually pretty fun. Um, but I, I do wish we could see, I wish there was some way to see McTiernan's two hour and seven minute cut of it because I want to see what he did differently and what Crichton changed because there are definitely, there are a lot of parts of this movie where I'm like, okay, this is all McTiernan. I can tell by the camera moves. Like when I, when I talk about McTiernan being able to make interesting looking shots, when, when they first arrive at, Hro- at Hrothgar's hall, and he's like, I know who he is. You know, I sent for him. Uh, he's grown into a man, a very fine man. There's that shot where Bullvi gets up and walks up to the king and leans in real close. The camera movement for that, that uh, push in and like it pans, uh, it, it pans around him and follows him in. It's such a, a dynamic thing and it really draws you into that moment. And it gives it just more, more weight and there's more going on than just somebody walking up. Or, or a straight pan even, like a straight push-in. So that kind of stuff, I'm like, yeah, that's McTiernan all the way. I see it in a lot of the action sequences, but then there's other parts of it I'm like, ah, is this McTiernan or was this Crichton? And I just want to see that other version because I love McTiernan's movie so damn much. Well, give HBO Max uh, some extra footage and run it through a black and white filter, and I'm sure that they'll put it out <laughs> for you. Oh, well played. Well played. You are on fire tonight. Ingve Malmsteen reference <laughs> now we're pulling out some Zack snyder ah uh, i love it um yeah i okay so based on john mctiernan films that you have seen because i don't know if you've seen all of them or not but where would you put this in his kind of list of movies sort of kind of in the middle towards the top towards the bottom how does it feel to you well definitely in the middle although i when you mention Predator, it seems to go very well with that because it's got that kind of all the warriors against a insurmountable task, a, a dirty dozen kind of feel of like, you know, you're going to lose your favorite characters in this. It, 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 whoever your lead is, they'll probably make it, but you're going to find somebody else that you really love and you're going to wind up missing them uh, partway through the film and wish they could have survived, but that's what the story is, and that's what it calls for. I think it's it's certainly a very solid movie, and it deserves more praise than what it got. Uh, I wonder if between his name being on it, even though Crichton, it, it went through the Crichton filter, if that's part of why he sort of disappeared in a few years. Well, McTiernan's story goes a little off the rails. Um, he, after this movie... Uh, his next movie was Rollerball, which right. that one's not good. Um, and then after that, he did a smaller movie called Basic, which I love, and I feel is another one that that more people need to see. It's a it's a tight uh, thriller. It's got uh, it's actually the first time Travolta and Sam Jackson were on screen uh, together since Pulp Fiction. Um, it's got Connie Nielsen in it, Brian Van Holt, um, and and it's this interesting little kind of drug sort of thriller that's set on an army base in Panama. Um, If you get a chance to watch it, it's really worth it. That was the last movie he made in part because he had to do a little bit of prison time. Um, He got, he got popped for wiretapping and then lying to the FBI about it. uh, Dealing with his ex-wife and a film producer. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but it's been messy to say the least. Uh, So it's unfortunate I mean, it, I guess in terms of things that he could have done to kind of sully his name, like there's a lot worse he could have done. Um, yes, but he just moved to France. Yeah, it, well, 
man, you're just ooh, on fire. Um, but yeah, that's I'm part of see about some things. <laughs> but that that's part of why he hasn't made anything since 2003. Now he's still working on or supposed to be starting uh, work on a movie called Tau City Four, which, from what I can tell, he's been talking about doing this for about ten years. So who knows? Um, but it's like McFarlane spawn. Yeah. Someday. Yeah. Uh-huh. Exactly. Uh, but for me, like 13th warrior, it, it's in the middle for me. Like it's not as good as, as Die Hard or predator. Um, I feel like those are, especially for your eighties action. They are like perfect eighties action films. Um, Die Hard has got such a great structure to it, uh, in terms of filming. And that's the thing with McTiernan is he knows, he knows film. Like he studied, I remember him giving an interview talking about the guy that he studied under at the American Film Institute would make him watch movies uh, for like days at a time and take notes and memorize them shot for shot so that they could understand why you would frame things a certain way. And he looked at and he was kind of taught to look at film like composing music where like why would this shot be like this no no no. see it's a beautiful looking shot but it's wrong it's in the wrong his, his the guy would tell him it's in the wrong key like he would use terms like that and i see that in his filmmaking he really tries to have this rhythm to it which is why uh there's stuff i remember in predator when i talked about that on this show the sequence where they attack the the gorilla camp is not directed by John McTiernan. It's a second unit, and you can tell because it feels very different from the rest of the movie. Um, so, like, that's one of the reasons why I like his style so much is that he has this flow and this rhythm to what he makes. Um, this one doesn't quite hit those notes, but it's very good. I, I put it above Medicine Man. Um, I personally put it above Last Action Hero, but that's not a knock on Last Action Hero because, again, that's a movie I feel like is unfairly looked at as being bad. It was marketed horribly. Plus, that was another one where, again, I'm because I read a lot of read a lot of interviews uh, with some of these directors, and McTiernan said from the beginning of pre-production to them putting that in theaters, Last Action Hero had nine and a half months. That's insane. If you yeah. know anything about filmmaking, that is insane. To For do what it. that movie was, too. That <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. So you know, I would put this above those two. I definitely, I mean, Rollerball is so far down the list. It doesn't almost doesn't count. Um, I like basic better, but you know, that's just a, again, kind of, isn't it more like a straightforward story though? This is, I mean, this is a story, but it, it really, it packs so much in. And of course we can't rate it fairly as his work um, because we don't know a hundred percent what parts of it were him and what parts of it weren't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which again, maybe maybe someday we'll get that that McTiernan cut, but I doubt it at this point. It's been almost twenty five years, so you know it's one of those things. Um, but yeah, I'm I, still I, looking for uh, the day the clown cried. So I I know vaults <laughs> exist, and I just keep hoping someone's going to open it up. And mm, boy, you know, Lewis, look if we get that, we're getting McTiernan's cut of this movie, yeah, for sure. And and all sorts of stuff like that'll that'll open up the floodgates. Um, I did capture some audio because there's actually some really good clips in this movie that I, I got to play because um, they were too much fun. We got a little Omar Sharif, um, and what was interesting was when I was watching it and kind of capturing some audio. 
not a lot of his lines were like, ooh, that's a good one I got to get. But I loved his deliveries of this, which was... She says the 13th man must be no North man. I don't know, something with the way he says North man. Yeah. I'm just like, ooh, I like that. And also, it's like, but she's not looking at me, buddy. She's looking at you. <laughs> yes. you know? There were two options, and they're both you. Yeah. Uh, and then you got a title drop. The 13th warrior is you. Roll credits. Like, there we yep. go. Um, so there's that. Okay. We didn't talk about this, but this movie has one of my favorite uh, sequences in film in terms of character, and that is him learning their language. Oh, yeah. Is such a brilliantly done, like, it's such a cool idea. They just have this montage of scenes around the campfire and him just watching and listening and paying attention, and it slowly morphs from... Because I think they had they had the Vikings speaking some... Some of them were speaking Norwegian and Swedish and I think Danish, maybe. I don't remember the exact languages, but they're all doing that. And then as the sequence goes on, you're getting little bits of English in here, here and there, a word or two, and then it slowly morphs until he finally uh, responds. And I'm just like, oh, that's so... That's such a cool way to do that. Um, and then his response to it after he calls the guy a pig-eating son of a whore. Uh, and you get... Um, Where did you learn our language? I listened. <laughs> I love that. I mean... That, that is, and again, uh, Aaron, my wife, and I were watching it, and she's like, oh, that's really cool. You know, that's really smart. And, and yeah, again, it could have been easily glazed over. There's plenty of movies where we just suspend disbelief and have them all speak the same language no matter what yep. um but to have that that montage of of him learning and and showing and that increases his value to the group that yeah. shows that he's someone that i mean at first they they react distrustingly um but then when they realize what he did it's like okay this is someone who's actually got intelligence he, he's got reasons for being here that maybe we haven't quite gathered yet yep so that that was one and and i just love the way he as only Antonio Banderas can say, I listened. It's like, whoa, Antonio, dial it back there, buddy. Dial it back. It's too sexy. Um, I had to get this, even though, again, as we talked about, the Vikings were intelligent people, and they'd been writing for a while with runes and whatnot. But the, the way they phrase this is just great. You can draw sounds. I'm going to start using that for writing. I draw. You, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not writing. I'm drawing sounds. I mean... Basically, that's that sounds like you're you're composing music, but language is the same sort of thing. It, mm -hmm. it makes sense that that would be how someone described it. How else would you? Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, and Phil mentions in the chat, McTiernan, McTiernan does uh, the language shift in Red October really cool too, and that's 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 another one that I really like, where it's just he's speaking Russian, and then the camera zooms in on him, and then he just starts speaking English, and we back out, and now we're doing that for the rest of the movie. It's fine. Like I don't, I don't mind that at all, and I just like inventive ways to show those language barriers. So, good catch there, Phil. Um, this was the Viking equivalent of get good when he tosses him the sword. Grow stronger. Just grow stronger. That's all you need. Yeah. It's <laughs> I like, love. It, it's like being your doctor. Well, it hurts when I do this. Well, then don't do that. Yeah, exactly. Um, I love that. I don't. So the the character again, I think some of what we lost from not. Uh, from the changes that Crichton made is the character of King Hrothgar um, and sort of all of that kind of stuff that was going on and the idea of 
the prince thinking that Beowulf or Bullvie wants to take over for King Hrothgar, which never, again, we, we talked about it, just sort of lies there, you know, dead. But he had a great line when the two of them are bantering back and forth and the, the king is just like, These are guests at what is still my table. It's like, that's the king saying, uh-uh, no, boys, you're done. It's my table. And and I liked that actor. I guess that was his one and only English uh, film that he was ever in was this. Um, he had but, good gravitas. He, he seemed like a, a old, you know, getting to the end of his years, all my kids want to kill me to get the throne king. He he had the presence to, to be in that part. Mm-hmm. I, again, went to Lord of the Rings, went to... You know, Brad Dorf's character in this case is the prince, but um, is is poisoning his mind and stuff like that, and trying to steal him away from from all the things. So he's the only influence, yep. and the king just kind of like overcomes it and gets stronger by the presence of someone who's actually a leader there, and and sees that and recognizes that's how I was. You know, I respect that we have a mutual fondness for each other because we both are like people. Yep. And this this poison voice of my son, I don't like that at all. Yeah. Yeah, and it gives them that great moment where the king is like, bring me my armor, and, and Beowulf's like, uh, yeah, yeah, um, no. Go protect the kids. We need the kids protect to be protected. Kids. Yeah, protect the kids um, from the blade that your wife just gave to somebody <laughs> else. Like, But again, like, it's a small thing, but he says that to him, and there's that look on Hrothgar's face of like, all right, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And I know what you mean. Yeah. Right. We're good. Good luck in battle. I'm going to... Also, notice, kill the kids when things come in the mist. Very, very familiar Mm. to uh, the Stephen King movie. Yes. (laughs) Um, I don't remember what this one was, so we're going to find out. You something. Uh, I am not a warrior. Very soon. Okay, yeah. I liked that. Yeah. That was another one of those fun little moments. Um and that that is straight out of the Beowulf. You know, the the first night fighting Grendel um in the in the Mead Hall. And so I enjoyed that. I also like how uh Herger would refer to him as little brother. That was such yep. a again, it's an endearing thing. It's showing that because he's not he's not doing it patronizingly either. Like he's not talking down to him. It's just like a term of endearment he has for, for this guy. And, and I just loved it. And he, in the way he would always say the emphasis seems more on him being family than it does on him being smaller or lesser. Yes. Let's go little brother. Just, uh, and I mean, I could have captured every instance of that, but it would have been my whole soundboard. So, I mean, I could capture the whole, every time that he's doing anything on screen, like I would, I would watch that character in a sequel, in like a, a series of sequels. You know, mummy that out, make him the Scorpion King, and just yes. give me tons of stuff about that guy because he was fantastic. Okay, so here's a question for you. You had mentioned how in a movie like this, you always know you're going to meet a bunch of characters, and and characters you like are going to end up dead um, because mm-hmm. that's the type of movie it is. You, you have this movie, not everyone's making it to the end. Were you worried that he was going to be that character? That he was Sean Bean? Yeah, I totally <laughs> was completely waiting for him to, to kick it. I was, I would have been devastated, but that was my expectation. The whole, but I also, by the time he's getting there towards the end, I thought maybe he was going to be the one who defeats the, the leader. Because 
again, that's something that they could have done, make him the new king by that action. But no, they didn't do either of those things, which could have been conceived as, you know, cheap and the easy way to go. They they went with the the most true way of the story, which I think was fantastic. Yeah, I mean, would they have gotten the emotional response they wanted by killing that character off? Absolutely. Like, it would have been a gut punch, oh, for sure. Yeah. But they subverted that expectation, and it's better for it. So I love that. But you're right. Him, on like Herger. Just give me a whole movie on Herger. He's yep. so good. Um, this is after they behead Angus. Um, and it's, again, this is uh, Bullvie and the characterization they have of him, where he he knew this. He knew all of this before any of it started, but it was a necessary thing to do. And so he's not happy about it, but it's the way he delivers this too. As you say, foolish and expensive. We will miss Angus tonight. We will miss his soul. And I just, like, he's, he, he doesn't like what had to happen, but he knows that it had to. And now yeah. he's going to move on. And that's, a, that's being the leader that they need at that point. That's prison so. rules. You take down the biggest guy. Yep. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I wonder how big an apple box they had to put on that uh, underneath that guy to give that much height difference because there's no, like the guy Dennis Stohoy um, is not that much shorter. I can't imagine. Like they were making yeah. him out to be like seven and a half feet tall, but that was a great moment where he's he's almost looking straight up at him while he's calling him out. It's so good. Um, this was. This is a good plan. That's all I'll say. Have we anything resembling a plan? Uh, right till we find them, kill them all. I mean, it's resembling a plan. <laughs> I love this plan. I'm it's so happy plan. to be a part. <laughs> uh, early on, this was one from early on when they're when he's explaining his name, and I just I had to get this. Eb, no, no, listen, Ahmed Ibn Fahalan. Even means son of Eben. That's all I heard was Eben. And now you're Chuck. <laughs> yep, you have become Chuck. Um, anyone who listens to this show knows that I love laughter in movies, especially like just big belly guffaws, and I usually will capture it. Again, would have been my whole soundboard if I just captured Vikings laughing in this movie, but I got one. <laughs> Oh, so good. There were so many great laughs in this, too. Just big, hearty, hearty, big man laughs. And I love that. Laugh when he hands him the mead. And, and he's like, well, I, I can't drink, you know, fermented grapes. I, I can't drink stuff from wheat. He's like, no, this is from honey. Yep. <laughs> he's just so happy. He's yes. like, I love that, bud. I got you. I got Yo. your back. Oh, yeah. That one, like all the, the, the big, great big laughs when they're in the boat during the storm. And like... Here's, here's this guy just huddled like, what is going on? This is awful. And here's the Vikings just laughing at the storm as they're they're, they're moving through it. I loved all of that. Um, let's see. What was this one? I don't remember now. In your land, one god is perhaps enough, but we have need of many. I will pray to all of them for you. Do not be offended. Oh, it's a good send-off. So good. Um, and then there were a few lines I had to capture. I had a lot from this movie, but there's a few of them that I had to capture because they're great lines for these characters and for sort of this, this Viking and Norse, uh, idea. 
um, and sort of Norse peoples. Uh, and there was this one, which again is it, like, I hear this line, I'm like, man, I want to start using that. Where is he saying, hurry to meet death before your place is taken? That's such a Norse line. Hurry to meet death before your place is taken. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Um, there's also when he's telling telling him about uh, he mentioned you know the All Father has woven the skein of your life already. Uh, go and hide if you want to, but you're not going to live a second longer. And then, fear profits man nothing. Fear profits man nothing. Is yep. again, it's so good. Uh, and then you got luck. So we got fear. So we know their thoughts on fear, and now their thoughts on luck as well. Luck, often enough, will save a man if his courage holds. That's another one of those. Like, hmm, man, that's uh, it, that's basically you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yep, exactly. It, if you have the courage to be out there and doing the things that you need to do that you know are right, then luck may still hold out and and save your ass in the end. Yep. Um, let's see. Uh, I am definitely stealing this one and I'm going to start using it. Uh, when he asks him, so this is where he's about to go fight the redheaded guy. He's about to go pick the fight and he asks him, what can I do? And he goes, keep your teeth together and go back to work. Keep your teeth together. Is such a badass way to say, shut up. Shut up. And I'm going to yep. start using that. I am stealing the hell out of that one. Oh, um, two more is, is basically shut up and keep smiling. Yes. Is what yes. I really get from it. It's like, just don't let on about anything. Yep. Fly casual. Um, of course it, it's not anything Viking or Klingon related unless one of them says something akin to today was a good day. Yep. Uh, that one. And finally, and we, we touched on this earlier with the whole idea of drawing sounds and writing and the, the payoff for that uh, whole bit was. A man might be thought wealthy if someone were to draw the story of his deeds that they may be remembered. Oh, it's so, so cool. There's a lot of movies that have, have done that where they bring you a line early in the film and then they bring you the line again at the end and it's like, oh, okay, it all came full circle. It makes sense now. And I feel it's gotten a little cliche, you know, in your Batman Begins kind of things. But in that case, it really was like a perfect way to end for that character of of where they started their relationship with each other. It's like, you learned our language. I want to learn writing so I'm going to pick it up from you, you know, and he, mm -hmm. he draws that back to him and he doesn't quite get it a hundred percent. Right. But the Bandezas character is like showing him how to do it still. And it's like, if, if the time had been there, he would have learned to write himself. He would yep. have had the ability to do that because that's, he has a strength of mind and character as much as his strength of, of body and will. And that was a, that was a perfect round for, for his character at the end. Yeah, and what I like too is is unlike um, the way it's done more uh, in recent films, where it's you take a line in the beginning or the first act, and it's verbatim repeated in Act Three to the person that said it. 
um, that does get a little hackneyed and it does get a little like, uh, all right, you know, yeah, we've seen that done now. What I liked about this was it was like, he set it up by saying, you can draw sounds, you can write. And he's like, yeah, I can write and I can read. And then he tests it out. But then at the end of it, he's like, boy, you know, it'd be really nice if somebody wrote the story of, of your, of my life basically. Yeah. And so like, it's just a, it's like a, it's a, it's like an elevated version of repeating the line, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. To, it, to it's basically, like, I'm tr- trusting you to honor me in a way that I can't ask outright. Yep. Um, but it, it was that, that unspoken answer of like, yeah, but I'm, I'm going to do it. Yes. Yep. And that respect between two people who have gone through what they have gone through in the last, however long it's been a couple of months, probably. Um, yeah. You know that that kind of it was basically kidnapped against his will to go <laughs> to fight this giant battle and and risk his life and see all these people that he becomes friends and family with die. Yep. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, th- look, this is a good movie. I'm glad you got to see it, and I'm glad that you enjoyed it. Um, do you think it's something that you'll watch again, or or kind of not even regularly, but just kind of like, yeah, you know what, I, I would I wouldn't mind watching this one again. Certainly not something I would avoid. I would, I would definitely like if it was somewhere where it was on. I would, I would be glad to to switch the channel and watch for some of those favorite parts. Uh, and yeah, if it goes straight from that to an episode of Greatest American Hero, so I can continue my William <laughs> Cat uh, left, or if I could get the old copy of Pippin, that would be fantastic too. Um, yeah, but just in general, yeah. I no, I I think it's thank you for introducing this to me. Uh, because I did enjoy it a lot more than I ever would have expected to. Even hearing, I'd never heard that it was a bad movie. I just never had the reason to go seek it out. Mm-hmm. And you give me the opportunity to see it. Uh, I I feel uh, very grateful. Good. I'm I'm really really glad to hear that. Where would you place this in terms of like Beowulf adaptations? Because that that story and that poem has been made into so many different movies over the years. Like there's been so many versions of it, and yeah, it's... and I haven't seen a lot of them. That's the thing is I don't remember ever watching the Lambert version, and okay. I know uh, the animated film. I I had interest in it, uh, but I mostly know from the opposite side. I remember the Grendel character from Dark Horse Comics, the Hunter Rose, and I got interested in Beowulf because of that. I've also got a friend uh, who does a comic series called Kid Beowulf, and so I know it a little bit from that. But it's it's so very different from what the actual story is. Mm-hmm. Getting this and seeing it and realizing, you know, as it went along, like, oh, that's what this is. I really like this adaptation. Now, yeah. it it's not 100% Beowulf, but it doesn't need to be. It, it's one of those things that just gives you enough of the flavoring to understand, like, oh, there's there's a lot to this story that could be interpreted in multiple ways. And it, I like just having this be one of the the variants of it. Yeah, and I think that's what's great about it is it being a variant. They didn't just try to straight adapt Beowulf, but they used yeah. a lot of those story points. And you know, I mean, again, it's like it's like having the epic of Gilgamesh is woven into a lot of stories you don't even realize they're they're telling the story of Gilgamesh or or a movie that uses the story structure of Rashomon, right? Like you don't realize it until you're partway through like, "Oh man, they're just remaking Rashomon with different uh with different stuff going on." Um, well, it all comes down to the things like the hero's journey getting reused yep. in so many ways. It's like that—that's what storytelling is. Is it, you may feel the themes get repeated over and over again, but they give you something new each time if they're doing things right. Yeah, 
Yep. And this one, I think, is is a fun adaptation of that. Uh, I It's hard to say if it's my... F- it might be my favorite on film because, like, the, the Lambert one's okay. There's one with Gerard Butler um, called Beowulf and Grendel that's, again, it's... It's a more faithful adaptation. I think I, I'm not sure on how faithful it is, but it's okay. I just think that this, like the liberties that they took and the things that they they altered, but they also like the. It's a lot more fun, and I don't even mind the animated one. Um, I went and I actually went and saw that in an IMAX um, when it came out, and it's it's good. Uh, but if I have the choice between watching that Beowulf or watching the Thirteenth Warrior, I'm probably going to watch this. So whatever that tells you. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being on. This was a ton of fun and I'm glad that you enjoyed the movie and I'm glad that I got to show you, uh, what is a criminally underseen, um, you know, action movie. Yeah. I, I really liked it a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now Corey, do you, uh, do you have anything you want to plug or anything you want to talk about? Um, anything you're working Uh, on? Well, nothing. I haven't done podcasting in a couple of years. I am uh, seeking, I'm throwing my hat in the ring, uh, if you will, uh, to be the, I, I know you probably heard of the comedian Gallagher, mm-hmm. and uh, then there's his brother Gallagher too. I think we've had a two Gallagher system for too long, and I would like to be the third Gallagher. I'm hoping to go for the intellectual Gallagher. Uh, so instead of coming out and hitting a watermelon with a hammer, I kind of want to talk about the feelings of why you want to hit things with a hammer. So if you can go to my website and uh, help support this, it is gt3 for Gallagher the Third dot fun gt3 dot fun. That would be fantastic. I would appreciate support on this. Do it gt3 dot fun. Go support Gallagher the Third. I love it. That's awesome. Thank you so much for being on this week. This has been a ton of fun. Uh, next week, I am talking to. Uh, the folks from the Movie Reviews in 20 Qs, which is a really cool podcast where they review a movie based on, they ask 20 questions about it. And the questions are unique to each movie. Uh, they got a, a lot of goofy stuff. It's, uh, it's some folks out of New Zealand. And we're gonna I'm going to show them Pretty Woman for the first time. Wow. So this will get interesting, I have a feeling. Uh, so we're we're going on the opposite end of the spectrum now. We've done the 13th Warrior. Now we're going to switch gears real quick. Try not to drop the transmission in the middle of the highway and go towards Pretty Woman. So that's what's coming up next week. Um, that's been a ton of fun. Uh, this has been great fun. If you want to hang out while I record this show live, you can do that at uh, twitch.tv slash Travis every Sunday night, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, next week's is going to be a different time because of a 13-hour time difference. So... I'll, I'll figure that out, and you can follow me on Twitter at TV's Travis, uh, and you'll get the updates for that. But if you want to uh, to watch live, you can be like uh, Ace or JF Dubow, uh, Danny Ora, Phil Rude is in the chat, um, and and hang out with us on a Sunday night. I see you in there uh, occasionally as well. That's always fun. Yep. Um, you can do that, and uh, and definitely uh, follow me on Twitter at TV's Travis, uh, and I'll talk pop culture, movies, books. You know anything, anything you want to. I just like to engage with people. It's fun to, fun to talk about all this stuff. I just have a great time with it. So please do that. But um, yeah, until next week and uh, Pretty Woman, Corey. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been thank you, sir. A ton of fun. Remember to enjoy your movies. And the world is crazy, but hey, let's be excellent to each other. This has been Wait You Haven't Seen. Yeah.
honey. <laughs> it's made from honey. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>